All right, I want you to think, remember a time in your life when you made a decision that shifted the trajectory of your life. Or maybe imagine, think about a decision that you have in front of you, potentially a life-changing decision, a trajectory-shifting decision. I want you to really think about, I know a lot of times we say things and you just kind of listen and we move on, but really think about a decision like that, that you've had and you made, or maybe that you have coming up, a trajectory-shifting decision. Let me share with you a couple of stories about people who have made such trajectory-shifting decisions. In 1505, there was a man named Martin Luther who was a young law student. And he had spent a weekend at home with his family and he was traveling back to university. And on his journey back, he got caught in a vicious and violent thunderstorm, so violent that he was afraid for his life. So he hid underneath the cleft of a rock and he cried out in desperation, Saint Anne, save me and I will become a monk. One biographer says that God kept his vows, so Luther kept his vows too. So Luther got back to university, he gave away all of his law books and supplies, and he entered the monastery immediately. A trajectory shifting decision that Martin Luther had to make. Here's another one that happens um, to King David in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel. So David is ascending to the throne over Israel, over God's people, and he's discerning whether or not he should relocate, whether or not he should move to a new place. And this is how the story goes in 2 Samuel chapter 2. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. That's it. Simple, right? Think about this. Like, think about those trajectory-shifting decisions that you've made in your life. Can you relate to how it went down for Martin Luther or for David? I can't. Like, I've never been almost struck by lightning, and I don't think I want that. And I've also never, and I know some of you may have, but I've never heard this sort of divine audible voice so clearly directing where I should go. And I think sometimes that kind of would be nice. This morning, we encounter this sort of story in the book of Acts, where Paul is faced with a decision. And there are all these sorts of supernatural, dramatic um, elements directing which way the Lord would have him go. And so we can be left again like, well, what does that mean? I can't relate to that. And so that's the question for us. What does this look like in our normal, everyday sort of lives? Because if you haven't already, you will be faced at some point with this sort of potentially trajectory-shifting decision. So how do we go about listening to God and discerning where God is calling us? So let's unpack this story that we see the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. So just to set it up and give you the context, the Jerusalem Council just happened. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15. It's a hugely significant event that we spent a couple of Sundays unpacking together. And so then after some time in Jerusalem, Paul and some of his companions set out 
And uh, they set out on what's commonly called Paul's second missionary journey. And Jamin preached last week and he read the story and unpacked the story about how this second missionary journey has a sort of frustrating, but also very honest start to it. It starts with this sort of bitter conflict that leads to Paul and Barnabas deciding to go in different directions. So then, of course, Paul goes over to Lystra where he picks up Timothy. Jamin got to preach about that last week. And then Paul, Timothy, and Silas head west. I'll show you a map. If you're a visual sort of person, here's a map that could potentially help you. So you see on the right side of the screen or the east, you see Jerusalem near the bottom. That's where they start. They head up to Antioch and they move over to Lystra. I wish I had um, like a laser pointer moments like these where they pick up Timothy uh, and then they travel over into Phrygia and they try, you see that the arrow takes some weird curves at this point because, keep the map up so we can keep this before us, because the first of a few different supernatural directives happens in verse six. Paul and his companions, they want to travel into Asia to preach the gospel. But it says in verse six that they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then you can see they travel over to Mysia and they want to go up into Bithynia. But in verse seven, it says again, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go there. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like. For Paul, like he's trying to go somewhere and the spirit of Jesus won't allow him. But in just two verses, Paul gets two very clear no's from God. Paul had his plans. He was journeying along and God said no and redirected him. So now Paul is hanging out in Troas, wondering like, God, what are you doing? I thought this was it. Where are you leading us? He's probably confused. They're probably frustrated. They're probably wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing here? What are you calling me to? Now, you probably can relate to that. Have you ever asked those sorts of questions? Like, God, what are, what are you doing? I, I thought this was it. Have you ever experienced that? Like, I thought this was it, but then I just experienced closed door after closed door after closed door. Now, in this story, we have an encouraging zoomed out perspective because we get to see in just a few verses that God saying no leads to a big yes. But some of you might not be there yet. You still, be, you still might be sort of in this holding pattern, stuck in Troas. Like, what, what's going on here? God, I thought this was it, but I just experienced a closed door. I just experienced you saying no over and over and over. Maybe even this sort of idea like, perhaps God's saying no to you now is leading to God saying yes. Perhaps even that feels like this sort of unhelpful platitude that just makes you frustrated because you're in a lonely and hard place. I think there's something here for you. So let's keep digging into this story of Paul and we're gonna get to it in just a little bit. So then in verse nine, as Paul's hanging out in Troas, wondering, discerning, God, where are you calling us? What do you want us to do? What do you have for us? He has this vision, a dream. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but we do know that in this vision, he sees a man of Macedonia and the man is begging him, Paul, please come over to Macedonia and help us. And then immediately after that, in verse 10, Luke writes, so we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. 
But then there's something really important in the second half of verse 10. Luke says, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there's this element of working it out in the midst of community, right? Like it's implied in that concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we get this picture of Paul having this vision and then taking it back to his friends like, hey guys, listen to this dream that I had last night. Let's talk about it. Let's discern together. Okay, we conclude that this is God at work calling us to go there. Let's pack our stuff at once and head over to Macedonia. So I'll ask you again, can you relate to that? Have you ever had a sort of supernatural vision where God is clearly directing you where to go? I would bet that most of you are not here in Memphis because of this sort of supernatural dream or vision. Now, some of you might be because God does still work in these sorts of powerful supernatural ways. God's supernatural power at work in the world didn't cease at the end of the first century. God does and God can still call people in these ways, but that's probably not the norm for most of us. So what does it look like, I ask again, to discern where God is calling you? Or is God's call something that's reserved for missionaries and saints like St. Paul and monks like Martin Luther, people who are doing, quote, holy work. And I use air quotes because I do think that God is calling you. God is inviting you to something too. And that your work or whatever it is that God is inviting you to is holy. So what is it? How do you find out? How do you discern Those are big questions that I hope you'll wrestle with for a long, long time. But I do want to give you two things to help you wrestle going forth with these sorts of big life questions. First, I want to give you a simple, profound truth, sort of a mantra for your life. And then second, I want to introduce you to a 500-year-old Christian saint and mystic who has a lot to say about what we're talking about this morning. So first, this beautiful mantra, this this beautiful, simple, yet profound truth that comes from this ancient Eastern Orthodox prayer. We're gonna put it on the screen. This is rich and this is good and this is deep right here. God is everywhere present and fills all things. God is everywhere present and fills all things. We see this clearly throughout scripture. Let me just show you a couple of places. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now, the psalmist isn't writing from this sort of fearful and shameful place, like God's watching over you, so you better be good. The psalmist isn't writing. That's not his heart here. The psalmist here is deeply comforted by the fact that God is everywhere present and fills all things. It's a comfort. It's a sweet truth to him. And then then the apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, The NIV says it this way, that Jesus fills everything in every way. The ESV says, Jesus fills all in all. 
God is everywhere present and fills all things. Now that's a, a truth that you could mine for the next 40 or 50 years and it'll stir something in your heart. But one thing that it stirs up for me, that it means for me, one implication is this, that God is already at work all around you all the time. God is already at work all around you all the time. And so my posture is, man, I just need to be aware, to be aware of what God is doing all around me and then to step into his flow. It makes me think of, um, it makes me think of a heat map, a heat map. I'll show you a picture of a heat map. So a heat map is a, is a way to visually, um, visually picture data. Um, so here's a heat map from uh, a running app that I like called Strava. So this heat map uh, shows runners in Memphis. So you can see where people are running. You can see where people are not running. And then you can see where people are running more. Like just in the center of the map there, you can see Overton Park. There are a lot of runners in Overton Park all the time, especially today. Praise God for the abundant sunshine today. So this is a heat map that visually represents running data in Memphis. So I imagine in my head this sort of like heat map of God activity. And then what would it look like for me to be aware that God is already at work all around me all the time to discern where is God working and how might I step into God's flow? Well, there's a 500-year-old Christian saint um, who has a lot to say to help us answer that question. Um, his name is, is St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius was a Spanish a priest who founded the Society of Jesus, uh, perhaps better known as, as the Jesuits. Um, so I started dipping my toes into this stream of Ignatian spirituality several months back. And then um, I took a deep dive back in September when I went on a three-day silent retreat at a Jesuit retreat center, which was awesome. <laughs> I recommend that all of you go to a silent retreat at a Jesuit retreat center. Just Google it, go and wait for God to work. Um, so I went back in September and kind of took a deep dive into Ignatius, Ignatian thought and practice. And so Ignatian talks a lot about um, reflecting on your days and on your seasons to discern where God might be at work and how you can enter into his flow. Ignatius calls this discernment. And he gives us a really helpful tool um, called the prayer of examine. Now, the quick, quick side note for us. Um, in the Protestant world throughout the last few hundred years, we've emphasized a lot um, correct thought like thinking rightly about God and truth. And that's very important. But we've emphasized it to such a degree that we've kind of gotten out of balance from thinking rightly about God and then actually practicing what it means to know God. And this is a practice that St. Ignatius gives us. And this is a reason that practices are so important to us here at Christ City. We have eight practices that we talk about a lot and we're about to talk about in just a couple weeks with a new sermon series over the season of Lent. We're about to talk about these eight practices a whole lot. 
And this is why this is so important because it helps us discern and step into where God is at work. So Ignatius gives us this practice called the prayer of examine. And the prayer of examine is simply prayerfully reflecting back on your day or on a particular season of life that God may have you in and detecting where it is that God's at work. We move through our days and we hardly ever pause to reflect. And so we miss out on where God may be working all around us all the time. So as Ignatius is talking about the prayer of examine, he gives a couple of different categories that you can be aware of as you reflect back on your day or your season. And he calls these two categories, consolation and desolation. Consolation and desolation. So here's what Ignatius would say. He would say, reflect back on your day at the end of every day. Take some time to prayerfully reflect on every moment of the day, starting with when you woke up, the first things that you did, your breakfast, whatever it is that you started your day with, all the way through lying in bed at night. And as you do, be aware of what feelings are stirring inside of you. Now, sometimes you'll experience feelings stirring inside of you that, like, man, that moment at that time, like, things just felt right. Like, not necessarily easy or pain-free, but, but things felt right and good. Ignatius would call those feelings of consolation. Here's how one Jesuit priest talks about feelings of consolation. The main feature of feelings of consolation is that their direction is toward growth, creativity, a genuine fullness of life and love in that they draw us to a fuller, effective, generous love of God and other people and to a right love of ourselves. These are feelings of consolation that stir something up in you. Let me give you a a list. I'm just gonna read through these bullet points really fast. You won't be able to write it down, but maybe you can take a picture or you can just Google this later because I took it from a blog. Um, So here's some lists, feelings of consolation. This is what this looks like as you reflect back on your day. Directs our focus outside and beyond ourselves. It lifts our heart so that we can see joys and sorrows of other people. Feeling, these feelings bond us more closely to our human community. They generate new inspiration and ideas. These feelings restore balance and refresh our inner vision. They show us where God is active in our lives and where he, he is leading us, and they release new and fresh energy in us. They make us alive. These are the moments throughout your days when you feel alive, feelings of consolation. On the other hand, as you reflect on your day, you'll become aware of feelings of desolation when things just didn't feel like they were going right. Perhaps they weren't going as God intends. Here's how Ignatius himself defines these feelings of desolation. Let me read this um, 16th century quote. So it sounds 16th century-ish and it was written in Spanish. So um, just pay close attention. These feelings of desolation, obtuseness of soul, turmoil within it, an impulsive motion toward low and earthly things, disquiet from various agitations and temptations. These feelings move one toward lack of faith and they leave one without hope and without love. One is completely listless, tepid or lukewarm and unhappy and feels separated from our creator and Lord. Similarly, here's a list of what feelings of desolation are like, how you can be aware of these. 
These feelings turn us in on ourselves. They drive us down this spiral ever deeper into our own negative feelings. They, They don't lead us to community with others. They cut us off from community. These feelings make us want to give up on things. They used to be important to us. We're apathetic. These feelings take over our whole consciousness and they crowd out our distant vision. They cover up landmarks and they drain us of energy. We don't feel alive. We feel lifeless and apathetic. These are feelings of desolation. So if you were to pause at the end of a day or pause right now and prayerfully and reflectively think back over this day or this season where God has you, what sort of feelings would come up? Ignatius would counsel you to lean in and to listen and to be aware because perhaps God is trying to alert you to the direction that he's leading. Now, some of you, again, you've experienced closed door after closed door after closed door. And you may be thinking like, Drew, my life is only desolation. Like there's no energy, there's no life. There's only apathy and listlessness and anxiety. And so I'd say to you this, that you don't have to go at this alone. Ignatius would not want us to go about this process of spiritual discernment on our own. This is a process that should never drive us away from community, but it should drive us into community, deeper and richer community with God and with one another, and even with yourself, inside of yourself. And so if that's you, perhaps your step today, your courageous step that God is leading you to, perhaps, is to simply reach out to someone. There will be people on either side, just like there are every week, who, who want to pray with you. And, and perhaps it's just reaching out to them. Like, hey, my life is only closed doors and is only desolation. And I'm frustrated and I'm lonely and I don't, don't know what God is up to. Will you help me? You don't have to go at this alone. That is a major theme of the second half of this story. So let's look here at what happens to Paul. And I want you to consider as we look at this, the second half of this story, what does it look like? What does it look like as you discern where God is leading you and then you courageously step out and follow him? What does it look like? So in verses 11 and 12, Paul and his crew uh, journey into Macedonia and they head strategically to a city called Philippi. Um, Luke alerts us that this is an important city in the ancient world. Um, It's a leading city in this region of Macedonia. And then in verse 13, Paul starts his ministry in this city like he often does everywhere he goes. Paul's sort of pattern, you, if you've been with us as we've journeyed through the book of Acts, you're, you're aware of this. Paul's pattern is he gets into a new place, and then on the Sabbath day, he goes to a place of worship so he can meet other God worshipers, other God fearers. And so he goes to a place that he thinks will be a place of prayer, and there he meets a group of women who are gathered for prayer together. And one particular person that Luke shares the story of is a woman named Lydia that Paul meets. And so we see in the story that 
Paul starts sharing this story about Jesus and something happens inside of Lydia. The text says that God opened her heart so that she could hear the message that Paul was proclaiming. And she wants to believe it. She wants to follow this man, Jesus, this one who died for her and who rose for her. She wants to follow Jesus. And so the text tells us that Lydia and her entire household, that they were baptized. Now, I want to just think about Lydia for a minute. She's in this place called Philippi. Um, It's not where she's from, but she's ended up there probably because of business. She's a businesswoman. She's a dealer in purple cloth. She's probably... um, influential, and she's probably financially wealthy. You've probably heard of the ancient city of Philippi because there's, there's a book in our New Testament called Philippians that was written to Christians in this city. And all throughout the epistles that Paul's writing in the New Testament, all these different letters he's sending to all these different churches, he's praising this church at Philippi. He's praising the Christians, the followers of Jesus in Macedonia. And I want you to consider with me that Luke says that Paul and his companions stayed in Philippi for a few days. They didn't stay there for very long, but this movement is sparked and people are following Jesus. There's probably, when Paul's writing the letter of Philippians, there's probably a pretty large network of house churches, people gathering on Sundays to worship Jesus, the risen Lord. And I want you to consider that perhaps the most influential person in this movement is this woman named Lydia. She invited Paul and his um, companions to her home. And it's at this home that the movement of Jesus in this influential place was launched. Lydia probably, probably provided support for the church through her leadership wisdom, her organizational acumen as a successful businesswoman, um, She definitely provided financial support to support this movement and to support the work of the apostles. And she provided spiritual leadership in the community. So I don't want you to miss this this morning, the important and significant role that this woman, this woman in a society where women had very few rights and where the role of women was not appreciated, that it was a woman who sparked this movement of the gospel throughout this Macedonian region. Paul is always praising the Philippians, the Macedonians. I want to show you one, one section, um, kind of a longer section in 2 Corinthians 8 to help us answer this question. What does it look like as you discern where God is leading and then you courageously step out and follow him? Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth about this Macedonian church. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace of God, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. This isn't the only place 
in the New Testament where Paul praises these Macedonian followers of Jesus. So here's, here's the one word that I would use to answer this question that's before us. What does it look like in your life as you discern where God is leading you, as you kind of have this heat map of God activity, what's God doing and how can I courageously step into it? What does that look like? What's true of this church in Macedonia, what's true for Paul, is it looks like fruit. Fruit. Amazing fruit. Lydia, this woman who's stirred and who leads this movement of churches in the area. These followers of Jesus who were afflicted and experienced seasons of suffering, many of whom were impoverished, but they give generously. They experience joy even in the midst of adversity. As Paul followed and discerned where God was leading, and as he courageously stepped into that, Paul and these Macedonian followers of Jesus experienced much fruit. And that, that is what I want for you too. I want you to experience fruit in your life, wherever it is that God is leading you, whatever it is that God is, is doing all around you. So what might it look like for you to take steps to discern what's God doing, where is God leading, and then to courageously step into that and experience the fruit that he might have for you. So um, before I close this morning, um, I want to I wanna extend to you just a very, a very practical challenge, um, perhaps a way that we can see more and more of this fruit um, that God has for us here at Christ City. So the fruit, um, in particular in this 2 Corinthians passage that Paul is praising in the Macedonian church is their, um, their benevolent and kind generosity. They're giving generously of themselves to support this movement of the gospel um, around uh, Corinth and all over uh, the ancient Near East. So uh, last fall, as we're journeying through the book of Acts, we're trying to actually step into it and act. We're trying to do things to help us practice what Paul and what Peter and all the other apostles are experiencing in this book. So we've, we've done different things. Like a couple of weeks ago, we extended an invitation to you to come forward to get prayers of refreshment, just like we see happening throughout the book of Acts. Followers of Jesus just praying for one another and experiencing seasons of refreshment in their lives. Another act that we participated in last fall um, was called the Generosity Project. If you've been around for a few months, you may remember this. For a couple of weeks, we were inspired and we were encouraged by the radical generosity of the earliest followers of Jesus, um, particularly in Acts chapter 5, when it says that they gave abundantly of themselves, they shared everything that they had so that no one in their midst had any need. And so inspired by that generosity, we said, hey, we, we want to be a generous people too. And so what would it look like for us for just a few weeks to radically give, generously give, so that no one in our midst may have any need? So that people in our city, neighbors, won't have as many needs. And if you remember that, that time was, was really fruitful. That's a word that I would use for it. There was a lot of fruit. Um, for example, we, we partner with this ministry called Compassion Clinic, uh, where doctors and nurses give of their time and their skills and their expertise 
uh, to provide much needed necessary health care for some of our city's most vulnerable who may not have access to the health care that they need. And so we were able, Compassion Clinic actually hosts clinics here in this building. And many of you, a couple of story groups help out with Compassion Clinic regularly. And so we were able to say, hey, we've got some extra resources and we'd love to just help. Do you have any needs? And so we, we helped provide medicines, medication that they could give to some of their patients who were coming. There was a neighbor in our city who is a single mom and who was a student and who was having car trouble and couldn't get to work, couldn't get to class, couldn't uh, take care of her daughter. And we were able to get behind her and partner with her and say, hey, we'll, we'll help you with some of these car troubles that you're having. There were people in our own midst, people who were, who were here that we were able to say, hey, we know we're aware of this need in your life. Can we, can we partner with you so that no one in our midst would have any need? What a beautiful thing. We experienced so much fruit. We raised over a couple thousand dollars above and beyond our regular sort of budget that we could just be generous with and see fruit in our city. And so just like this Macedonian church, we want to act. And we want to this week and also next week and maybe the week after that, we want to participate again in the generosity project. And on a very practical level, this is how we're filling this year what we call our benevolence fund. Um, money that we set aside for this purpose to help people in our congregation and people outside of our congregation who may be experiencing various needs. And so this week and next, there are a couple baskets, one up here on this piano and another over here that you're welcome if you have cash or check and you wanna give above and beyond your regular giving to Christ City, you can drop in cash or check. You can also give online um, these Details are in your bulletin, so don't get bogged down in these details now, but you can even just send a text message to 77977, and the text message just needs to say Christ City Memphis, and you can give with credit card or debit card. So what might it look like for us to be a generous people? What might it look like for us to experience fruit? And before I close in prayer, this is my prayer for you all. May you be deeply aware of God's leadership in your own life, what God is up to, where God is calling you to. And may you courageously and boldly follow him. And as you do, and as we do together, may we experience much fruit. Let's pray. Lord, that is my prayer, that we would be a deeply reflective people that we wouldn't miss out on you and what you're doing all around us all the time, that you are everywhere present and you fill all things. And so Lord, would you alert us to what you're doing? And then would you give us the courage to step out? Would you give us the desire, the passion to step out and to follow you wherever you're calling? In Christ's name we pray, amen.